0: All righty. Hello, everybody listening out there. Welcome back to the Elevate Experience podcast. I am your host, Mr. Seth Provencio. And with me, uh, I have the one and only Dana Smith.
1: Hey, I'm glad to be here with you today. I'm glad you asked me to do this podcast episode. I'm excited to get into what we're going to talk about.
0: Right on. Yeah. We're all, we're glad to have you too. Um, for those of you listening, uh, Dana is the phase three responsibility. group facilitator at elevated addiction services phase three is um, the later stages of someone's program Uh, when a client comes into elevated addiction services first they're detoxed uh, and they do a detox program where they then transition into phase one which is you know we spend a lot of time uh in meditation and doing a lot of crafts you know lots of uh, uh different therapies exposure therapies and things of that nature where they then move over to phase two, which is starting to ask some of the more deeper questions about their own self-awareness and, and coming to understandings of who uh, a person really is in, in sobriety. Because a lot of times when people come in, um, you know, they're they're very unsure. You know, a lot of times people spend a lot of time um, in their addiction. And when they finally set that down, they, you know, they start to find out who they are. Um, And then from there, they transition into phase three and phase four, where they meet the lovely Dana Smith. Right. Mm -hmm. And from there, they do um, probably some of the most intensive work that they do in the Elevate program as a whole, which is taking responsibility for uh, past transgressions or and by transgressions, I mean past times when uh, we've hurt ourselves or somebody else, uh, you know, in our lives and taking responsibility means, you know, owning up to it without minimizing, you know, justifying or placing blame onto others for Mm -hmm. our actions And then from there, doing an amends process to try to make right the wrongs. Uh, Dana, please tell us a bit about your experience working at Elevate and what you do there.
1: Yeah. So I've been working at Elevate for, gosh, it must be at least a year and eight months now. Um, I've done a couple of different things here. When I first came in, I was working with our quality management department, uh, assisting with um, new staff training, kind of helping to oversee our interns. I did a lot of, like, special projects for um, TOTS doing a lot of liaising with this company called Vista. Clients would do these check-ins throughout the week on their mental status and how they were doing. And that was something that would get tracked throughout the program. I would also assist with our continuing care department, which is a lot of making exit plans for after clients leave treatment. Um, I did a whole bunch of things for that first year up until there was a spot open and needed in our health services office. I don't have much of a background in the medical field, but they usually will have an administrative position in there. I did a lot of assisting clients with their applying for disability, Family and Medical Leave Act uh, requests, things of that nature. I did that for about seven months and then I came into this uh, position to be a group facilitator. Group facilitating is probably my favorite thing I've done here thus far. It's extremely exciting to go from some of these positions that have been a lot of the more behind the scenes, still extremely important work that gets done to Elevate. But now being one of those counselors, that gets to really work hands-on with the clients, you get a lot more feedback. It sounds very, very vain to say this, but, you know, the group facilitators are the ones that the clients give the most shout-outs to. They're the ones that the clients say, like, helps them the most with their program. And I always wanted to kind of like get kind of that recognition, which is exciting. It doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from doing a good job. And I hope to earn that.
0: Yeah. I mean, you definitely have. I mean, when, when the position opened up, you were first pick of saying, mm-hmm. oh, who's the most reliable person uh, that we have to fill that role um, because of what you've done with the uh, quality uh, control and uh, with the health office. So we're, we're awesome. We're excited to have you, mm-hmm. you know?
1: Yeah. So Up in um, my room, and as Seth was explaining, the clients go through um, his group with our phase one curriculum through the phase two, three curriculum. I think you had our phase two, three facilitator on uh, over the last two episodes, uh, Greg Fry. Um, He does really great work there with the clients as well. He's been doing it far longer than I have. But yeah, when they get up to me, um, they're kind of starting to near the end of their program. And it's, it's it's both a blessing and a curse because the blessing is that a lot of the time they kind of know the rules. They know how to um, act when they're in here. I kind of get the clients that are um, at the point where they're either, if if they weren't ready to play ball from the beginning, they're ready to play ball now. But the work that they do in my group is some of the most difficult work that they'll do throughout their entire program uh to any listeners who may have a background in 12 step um our responsibility step uh portion of the program is a little bit similar to um a step four from the 12 steps the uh fearless moral inventory um basically what they're doing is we have them for you know as long as it takes sometimes about two weeks um do this writing assignment where they just write down in detail objectively like every single time they can remember um making a transgression or a misdeed any time they've ever engaged in their addictive behavior and you're you're not you're not the client's favorite person when they're <laughs> when when they're getting ready to stop writing I'm like no you got more you got more I'm going to challenge you for more
0: Right, right you know it's it's funny when um when when people can come in and and you know live a life of destruction of self-destruction and destruction of, uh, you know, of their social lives and family dynamics mm-hmm. for years and years and years. And then, you know, they come in and they say, okay, look, I've, I've taken responsibility. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've wrote about the five things that I've done wrong. And, and what do you tell them then?
1: I tell them there's definitely a lot more than five. You've, if you are addictive behavior becomes a pattern, um, but it's time to take responsibility for every single instance within that pattern that you can remember.
0: Wow. Very cool. Very cool. And I know you're supportive, too, because it's it can be very daunting, mm-hmm. you know, to how long does the, how long do they spend doing that?
1: So we used to have it be um, kind of indefinitely uh, when I did my program uh, a couple of years back. It was, you know, just as long as it takes you. Uh, we've started kind of like letting clients know their graduation dates in advance now just to make things easier for exit planning, figuring out where clients are going to go. It can be very, very difficult to exit plan when you don't know necessarily when you're leaving the program. Mm-hmm. So around when they get up to my group in the program, we do give them that exit date in advance, which means I kind of have to figure out like a schedule of, okay, how long am I going to let them spend on in general it's about um two weeks anywhere from to two and a half weeks
0: right two weeks of just writing mm-hmm. all day
1: yeah for the most part all day they still get some group therapy thrown in there but for the most part it's all day writing
0: right on right on so thanks for telling us a bit about like what you do at mm-hmm. elevate because you do a lot mm-hmm. you know um would you mind telling us a little bit about like what life was like for you before
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny. Uh, I was one of those people who had very... My drug of choice was alcohol. Uh, A little bit of weed thrown in there, but alcohol was really the problem. Um, I was one of those people who had... I got sober when I was 22 years old. Um, I was one of those people who had very much like a, a, a partying relationship to alcohol. I was definitely drinking too much but you know at that stage of life where it's oh it's too much but you're also 21 so you're young you're in college it's this is something you'll grow out of but i i was had a, just a pattern of you know a lot of drinking in bars a lot of poor decisions while drunk a lot and it was always felt like something i could stop and then march of 2020 um covid happened. And I was no longer going into the city all the time. I was no longer going to clubs to drink with my ex. I was no longer going to bars all the time. But I was home and I was like, I still want to drink and Mm. I'm going to drink every single day. And the fact that I was, you know, alone, drinking alone every single day throughout most of early COVID lockdown. It was like, okay, this is actually becoming a problem. This is how I know it's an issue and I can't stop because I'm not going out and doing it for fun anymore.
0: Yeah. Yeah. COVID was a hard time for a lot of people mm-hmm. out there um in regards to mental health, uh, substance use, um, you know, financial situations. Mm-hmm. Lots of people got laid off. And I mean, for us in in the helping profession, I mean, that was probably one of our busiest years mm-hmm. that we've ever that I've remember seeing.
1: I think there will be studies in the future about just like what COVID did for um, people's substance abuse issues. I think people who may have already had a tendency towards substance abuse, this just immediately or exacerbated it. What I like to say is, I would have ended up needing to quit drinking uh, one day in the future, but COVID made it happen a lot quicker. COVID um, got me into rehab definitely sooner than it would have been otherwise.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and to the people that were in recovery during that time too, there was a lot of meetings that people would go to that seemed to just vanish overnight. Mm -hmm. You know, um, people weren't allowed to gather. And, and so we saw people, you know, coming in during that time, uh, who, who were in recovery that, that were no longer able to maintain because, you know, they, people were talking about, um, how they no longer had support groups or support meetings or things like that, because, uh, there was no gatherings. Mm -hmm you know?
1: And there's a big difference for sure between having a meeting online versus having a meeting in person. I think, um, I'm an advocate for, you know, get your support wherever you can. If you can only find an online meeting, utilize that online meeting. But we all know, um, there is a big difference between seeing people on a screen versus having to physically go somewhere. Um, For one thing, if you're going to a meeting online, a virtual meeting via Zoom, it's very, very, very easy to show up, but necessarily not pay attention, even drink while you're in that meeting. Um, If you have to physically get up and go somewhere and make it to that meeting, you've made that commitment to be around people, show up. They can tell if you're drunk or not. You can't just turn the webcam off. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> right right or or step away to take a swig you know exactly yeah in in meeting in in in-person meetings or in-person treatment uh there's not much hiding that could occur for an individual who you know why would people want to go to treatment or go to a meeting and drink anyway
1: you know i think um some people aren't ready um, one of the things that I've learned about, and this is something I want to discuss a little bit, is this idea of the stages of change. Mm-hmm. Uh, when people are getting ready to um, stop an addictive behavior, they're going to go through um, different stages of change. Um, it's They studied this. I want to say the two guys, their names were Prochaska and DiClemente. Mm-hmm. And they studied a bunch of people who were quitting smoking, and they found that they went through Um, Kind of similar to the stages of grief, but it's uh, the stages of change, where when you're first preparing to make a change, you're in the state that we call pre-contemplation, called, it might be denial. Um, You're not really aware that there is a problem, you think everything's fine. And as you move out of pre-contemplation, you get into contemplation. Uh, Contemplation is where, you know... You're starting to kind of be aware that there is a problem. You have not made any commitment to change it yet. You know that in the back of your head that maybe, you know, this is something I need to change at some point, but you haven't really necessarily made any plans to. You're on the fence, basically. You go back and forth. There's a lot of ambivalence about whether or not this is actually a change you're going to make. And I spent a long time in contemplation throughout most of COVID, deciding, you know, this is something that probably isn't that healthy. Normal healthy people don't um pick up a pint of whiskey every single day on their way back from work and then drink it until they pass out. Wait,
0: really? Probably not. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> <I'm just playing. laughs> and the funny
1: thing is, if I can, if I can veer off topic for a second, Please is just... um I think that got really normalized during COVID. We look at things like, you know, wine mom culture, and I would see like memes that it's like, oh. It's 2 p.m. and it's the middle of COVID. There's nothing else to do. It's wine o'clock. Let's get drunk. And a lot of that, it gets seen as funny and it gets seen as normalized. It's like, let's actually examine that for a second. You think you need to engage in a drug right now just because there's nothing else for you to do. That's probably a sign of a larger issue. But after contemplation, you'll move into preparation where you maybe you've set a quit date. You are taking the steps to actively make the change. You haven't necessarily made the change yet, but it's something you're committed to. After preparation comes action, which is maybe if you're doing 12-step, you're doing your 90 meetings in 90 days, you have made the change and you are actively working every day to stay with that change, where it kind of is like, it's like that early time in sobriety where you're either in treatment or it's the one thing that you are working on right now. Mm. And then after action, you move into maintenance, where you're um, still working on yourself. It's still something you have to be aware of. Triggers, cravings still come up. And at this point you're kind of just becoming more of a person who also happens to be in recovery. So as for your question as to why a person would come to a meeting drunk or a person would come to treatment still got try to get drinks in or drugs in, um, it comes down to these people still may very well be in pre-contemplation or contemplation. They haven't necessarily made this commitment to change yet. They may be here and not necessarily want to be. People come after an intervention. People come just to kind of try and check things out. I'll have um, I'll see people come to a meeting where they've had a drink that day, but you know they're also trying to see if they're prepared to make this change. So they'll come to a meeting and they haven't necessarily committed to making that change yet.
0: That's awesome. It's like it's it's a it's a phenomenon that you were able to put under a microscope for mm-hmm. a second for our listeners there's states of change. Um, When it comes to recovery and sobriety, a lot of times a common misconception is just that like people can just stop. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I mean, sometimes people can, right? But for those who can't, or for those where it's more complicated, you know, um, we, they, people find themselves in conflicts of values, Mm -hmm. right? Where they say, okay, like I value recovery. I value the chase to be sober and clean. So I'm going to go to a meeting, but I am not equipped at this time to go to a meeting sober. So people are trying to do everything they can and trying to figure it out. And it can become very frustrating for the individuals. Mm -hmm. Um, So there are many roads to recovery, many roads to sobriety. Um, One of them being smart recovery. Mm
1: -hmm. So smart recovery is it's a nonprofit organization and they have uh, mutual support meetings that are They're kind of stemmed up as an alternative to 12-step or AA. They're really strongly based in ideas of cognitive behavioral therapy, rational emotive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy. It's a lot of stuff that has been, you know, tested by psychologists. There is scientific merit behind it. When you go to a smart recovery meeting, you're going to get tangible tools that you can utilize in your day-to-day life, and you're going to get feedback on your issues. One of the biggest differences that I can point to between a 12-step meeting and a smart recovery meeting, and caveat, as I say this, I will say that both of these have their value and have their benefit. One is not necessarily better than the other. I don't have a 12-step background. I've been to a few meetings. Um, A lot of my background of recovery comes from SMART, but that is not to say it is better or worse than 12-step. The biggest difference between a 12-step meeting and a SMART recovery meeting um, is that when you go to a 12-step meeting, there is a sense of people are giving these long shares that feel like they are venting. They need to be heard. They need a space where they can just kind of let it all out, share how they're doing, um, explain that maybe either they're doing great or that they're not doing great and people are going to sit there and they're going to say thank you for sharing like you fe- you, you are heard right now mm-hmm. however if you go to a smart recovery meeting you are kind of kind of be challenged to explain how you're doing but break it down to a workable issue explain i keep having cravings when i walk by this area you're going to get feedback from the group you don't really get feedback in a 12 step meeting. You're going to feel heard. You're not really going to be um, challenged in that moment or given feedback or given any like constructive criticism or anything like that. And smart, it's going to be, no, let's talk about this. Let's work on this. People will give you advice. Uh, and it's the job of the facilitator to make sure that like it all stays respectful. It stays on track and that we are working towards resolving issues.
0: Right on. Yeah. So yeah you pointed out some differences between the smart recovery meeting and a 12 step, uh, treatment meeting, uh, being the more interactiveness and, uh, the encouragement of crosstalk Mm -hmm. that occurs in a smart recovery meeting that maybe isn't so much encouraged in, um, AA or 12 step, um, meetings. Mm -hmm. I know they have like step studies and things of that nature. I've been to a fair amount of uh, AA meetings and NA meetings way back in the day. Right. In um, some or like step studies or, or book um, uh, meetings, things of that nature. But um, with the smart recovery meeting, it sounds like it's more way more interactive. Mm-hmm. I know you're a smart facilitator, correct?
1: Yeah. So I am a smart recovery facilitator. Uh, When I was in my program, and I did the Elevate program myself, inpatient, Mm -hmm. from October of 2020 through December of 2020. And during that time, we would have, you know, our education blocks and we have different types of group therapy. We would have the teams that were ran. We would have, you know, art therapy and music therapy. We would have conscious recovery. Have you guys talked about conscious recovery in this podcast before?
0: I don't think we have. Okay, I haven't personally.
1: Got it. So conscious recovery being a specific type of group therapy based on TJ Woodward's philosophy. But one of the things that we had was smart recovery. And I really, really, really liked it when I was in the program. I liked it. It would give you these tangible tools you could utilize. I liked that the feedback was encouraged, that I could give feedback to someone else and they would give feedback back to me. And it was kind of not super structured in that we could talk about whatever we wanted. There wasn't a set theme for it. So when I started working here, we uh, had a couple of our guys who um, were smart recovery certified, um, found work elsewhere. They no longer work with Elevate, to the best of my knowledge. And we didn't really run smart for our clients anymore. So when I became staff, I got myself certified. And for a while, I ran smart for some of the clients at the center. At this point now, what I do is... I run SMART for our um, community. I run a meeting each week um at our business office for our community here in the Aptos, Santa Cruz, Watsonville area.
0: Right on. So going from being a client, mm-hmm. getting SMART, going to SMART meetings hosted by Elevate treatment staff, mm-hmm. becoming a SMART facilitator, and then hosting meetings on, you know, elevate property and mm-hmm. things of that nature, but then going out into the community mm-hmm. to host in the central coast region, uh, a smart recovery meeting. Mm-hmm. That's rather impressive.
1: Yeah. It's what I, it's, it, 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 it's, it's very cool to, <laughs> to look back at the journey. Uh, yeah, it's, it's wild to think that like, I'm helping people with their recovery the same way I've been helped with mine. Um, and I'll say this, that what I have found the most interesting and neat is the difference between a smart recovery meeting that happens in treatment versus in the community. The The difference can be staggering based on, you know, when you run one that, uh, for a group of people in treatment, you're going to, first of all, have a bigger meeting just because you've got more people that have to be there. Mm. So... First of all, maybe not everyone's going to share. First of all, there will be some people that you have to kind of, like, make sure are staying on task. You're going to have, but the biggest thing is that you are going to have a lot of similar issues that are coming up. People are in a structured, inpatient community. You're going to have a lot of people that are, you know saying, Hey, you know, I'm not really feeling triggered. I'm in this safe space. Everything's kind of going fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, or they'll have just like some of the same issues will come up. Like I've got, you know, issues with uh, the book work I'm doing. Um, I've got a phone call I'm nervous to make. Um, so it's a lot of running the same issues, applying smart recovery tools for, you know, when they leave the program. When you run a smart recovery meeting in the community, first thing you're going to notice is it's going to be a lot smaller, or at least it has been with me. Our meeting is relatively new. I have on average about, you know, six or seven people that come each week. Um, Uh It's a good number. Um, I've got some returners that are back every single week, and it's super exciting to see, like, either that they're still sober or that, you know, they had a slip that they've gotten back on the wagon. That's the biggest thing. You will have people who have had slips in the last week or who have had a drink that day or who have like faced real triggers throughout that week. And it's exciting to like give them tools that they are going to go out and use in their life throughout the next week while they're, you know, at their job, while they're facing like big real life stressors around them. I think smart recovery definitely is useful in treatment, but it works so much better running it like outside of treatment for our community.
0: That's awesome. You talked about smart tools,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? Um, for for those listening, smart recovery stands for self management and recovery training.
1: I never said that. You're right. Yeah, Thank you said <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. So, like smart recovery, like what's so smart about it? Well, it's it's very it's very logical. It's mm-hmm. very objective mm-hmm. in presenting a tool that uh, that we the facilitator uh, presents a tool. And the smart tool could be like a how to fill out a chart or mm-hmm. a graph or um, these other things that help people better make decisions or create more space between um, their reactive self and maybe their responsive self through, you know, working out decisions, weighing out pros and cons, short term, long term, cost benefit analysis mm-hmm. and things of that nature. Um, and it sounds, it sounds to me like you could go to a smart recovery meeting and also be a participant in in 12 step meetings as well. It doesn't seem like there's a value conflict there at all. I
1: would say there's not really a value conflict. Mm-hmm. Um I think both like I said both of them really do have their place. You've got times where um you want to just be heard and not receive feedback and there are times where you really want feedback through your issues. Uh and as far as like the programs themselves go um In SMART, you're not necessarily working a program. You're not working through steps. Um, You are, there's, we have, the SMART Recovery has a handbook that any member can get on the SMART Recovery website for a pretty cheap cost. I want to say it's about $12. And as you read through it, it's just, you know, it's a workbook. It's information and charts that you can fill out of some of the different smart recovery tools. The smart recovery itself has a program of four points that each of the tools is going to fall under. So what smart recovery is, is the four point program is number one, building and maintaining motivation to stop your addictive behavior. Uh, Coping with urges and cravings is the second point. Third point is, you know, managing your thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. And the fourth is living a balanced life. Um, all of the different smart tools are going to fall under at least one, if not more, of those different points of the program. But there's not necessarily a tw- um, a set of steps that you work through.
0: OK, right on. So it'd be good. It'd be good to for an individual in recovery or for somebody who is uh, questioning uh getting into recovery or questioning sobriety to kind of expose themselves to to different modalities of treatment. Absolutely. Right. Whether it's 12 step meeting and AA meeting and NA meeting, uh, we talked about conscious recovery. Um, and then also now we talked about smart recovery. And for those listening, if you guys are in the central coast region, mm-hmm. uh, you guys could come to the smart rec- uh, recovery meeting uh, hosted by, you know, elevate clinical staff, Dana Smith. Mm-hmm. Uh, you guys, all you got to do is check the A description of this podcast and we'll post the meeting time and the um the address absolutely
1: it's every tuesday at 7 p.m
0: every tuesday at 7 p.m no excuses works over at five right (laughs) exactly (laughs) that's right that's right um and that's and that's really cool that you kind of broke it down for us that Mm -hmm. that you host this meeting and it's in person
1: it is it is in person
0: right on You know, now that things are starting to open up a little bit, Mm -hmm. you know, it'd be good to get out and and come by if you have questions about Elevate or questions about Smart Recovery or or you want to go expose yourself to a meeting, we have one here Mm -hmm. Tuesday night. All right, everyone, that is our show for the day. We hope you found some value in listening. And if you did, please share this podcast with someone you know or love. You can find us on social media. We are at Elevate Addiction Services. And if you or a loved one are struggling with addiction, please call our toll-free confidential 24-hour helpline at 833-33-SOBER or visit our website at elevaterehab.org.